Welcome back. Those of you that were not here this last week, we're glad to have you with us. Um, it's a new year. Some of you I haven't seen since last year until today. So it's great to see you. Um, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, we're going to jump right back into our series in Ephesians and um, this time deal with the text um, dealing with husbands. Uh, we dealt with the wives uh, for a few weeks and now we're going to deal with the men. So um, if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, we're going to be there for the most part today um, and then cross-reference with some refer- um, other verses uh, dealing with this text. Um, one thing I wanted to point out, I, you know, if you, if you didn't listen to last week's sermon, I would really encourage you, if you're a member of Simon Grace Church, uh, not because I preached it, but because I do believe that God's got a lot of good things in store for us uh, this next coming year. Uh, those of you that don't know, we do have a new website, so I'm throwing that out there right now. Um, and we're going to try to keep up with the events this year. Uh, so if there's something coming up, let us know. Uh, yeah, let Pastor know or myself, and we will put that event up in the calendar. You could subscribe to it, and it'll send you a forwarded email that something's going on that day. Um, so we would really um, want, want to avail you of that service. We're going to also start putting pictures up. Um, so um, as I mentioned last week, if you don't want that picture, we'll edit it, put someone else's face in there for you. But um, the point, the point is, is we will definitely um, be more proactive this year. The goal really is to be more proactive as a church. Um, be more proactive as a school, and uh, truly our God deserves more than that. You know, he really does, and I think we can do more this year. Um, I know some of us, uh, we, we have a difficult time sometimes with the energy that God gives us. It's, it's harder as you get older. Uh, I'm not that old, so I'm not talking about myself, but um, as, as difficult as it is, we know that um, people like the Apostle Paul are an encouragement and an inspiration for us to keep going. Um, he didn't have it easy. Uh, in fact, all the hard things that we go through pale in comparison to what Paul went through. Um, I can't imagine being beaten, uh, left for dead, uh, imprisoned, chained up. I mean, you name it, Paul went through it. And uh, I think we can go through much less with more fervency. Um, so um, as, we, as we talked a little bit about last week and just transitioning back to this study in Ephesians, um, the same author, uh, Paul, is the one that writes this letter to the, the church of Ephesus. Uh, we talked about uh, what happened um, Earlier in the chapter where he talks about wives submitting to their own husbands in the fear of the Lord, and Scripture repeats that, I think, four or five times, to submit to their own husband. It's not a woman submitting to a man. The, the chauvinist is not what's, what's argued there. Um, the argument is really to, to have a respect for, and we, we talked about that later on in the chapter, that there's a respect that, that the man needs in the house and, and the wife is to provide, and that she's a helper. Um, just as we take that analogy and we, we look through scripturally, why those terms are important. We cross-referenced that this morning. We're going to take a look at something important that I think really many times we miss um, as a church body uh, when we read verses like this because what we do is we skim through it and we go, yeah, I know what this means, and we keep going. Um, So starting at verse 25, uh, turn your Bible to verse 25 in chapter 5, and we're going to start there where Scripture says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that, he should, that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hateth his own flesh, but nourisheth, nourishes it and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church, 
For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each of you in particular so love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Father, we thank you for this day you've given us. Thank you for your word. Please allow me to um, exposit it correctly and that we would be encouraged and built up in the faith that you would uh, give us that prime example of Christ and how he sacrificed for us as the church. Um, help me to speak only the things that would be pleasing to you, Father. And if I veer out, that you would bring me right back. In Jesus' name, amen. One thing we see here, uh, and right off the get-go, Paul makes a statement, Husbands, love your wives, as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Um, now, most Christians, when they read through the Bible, including this text, we, we read through it and we go, yeah, I, I understand what he means by that, so I'm just going to keep going. And what we end up doing is we don't, we don't cross-reference and really kind of take sometimes pause on Scripture and go back and go, what does that really look like? Uh, what does he mean by Christ loving the church um, the, way, the way that he says that he, uh, we as husbands should? And one other thing I think is really important, notice what he says here in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also, what's the word there? Love the church. Why would he use the past tense? I mean, isn't Christ loving the church today? He is loving the church today. So the interesting thing is when you read through Scripture, and some, some words you just you stop and think, oh, why, would, why would Paul use loved instead of is loving the church? You know, just kind of continually. Well, unless we look at other, other passages to give us a better understanding, we'll not be able to get a complete, accurate understanding of what he's meaning here by loving our wives like Christ loved the church. It's important to point out that the word loved here is the past action by Christ. If you know uh, your grammar, you know this is a past action. So what does Paul say loved instead of loving as in the present. The reason, I believe, is there's plenty of solid evidence of this in the past that we need to look at and understand what the text is saying. So what Paul is trying to get us to do as believers is to say, Christ has loved the church, and you are, you are to start thinking about what he means by that. Does that make sense? Like you're supposed to look at past, past actions, uh, past things that have been done that really should reiterate this point to you in the present. So I think what Paul is driving another point here is for us to really take a look um, as to how Christ has loved the church. And we're going to break this up in a few different sections. Um, first of all, we see this in the text here specifically. Paul really demonstrates to us what he means. He goes, uh, Christ also loves the church and gave himself for her, giving of himself. Christ gave of himself for us. Um, those of us that are believers, we understand this terminology. Uh, if you're not a believer, uh, it's important to understand that there's something here that is a mystery that Paul really refers to later on, that really is a picture of Christ and the church and the husband and the wife relationship. Um, these two are, are to be understood uh, to be really references to each other so you have a better understanding of what God is talking about and what Paul specifically uh, informs us of in this text. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to uh, John chapter 15, verses 11 through 17. We're going to look at a few things. Um, but one thing I want to point out um, we find out in Romans 5.8, this is a text really to, to bring us back to what Paul's dealing with here. God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Um, Christ gave of himself before you and I had anything to be valued. 
Uh, in fact, we were enemies of God. Scripture reiterates that over and over. And when Paul uses the term sinners, which Paul's the same author in Romans, um, when he uses the term sinners, that means apart from God, people that um, do not have eternal life in sight. And First uh, John four nineteen, Scripture tells us that he, we love him because why? He first loved us. the The idea there is is that we have to take a look at our lives and go. I only love God because He's loved me first. I only love Christ because Christ loved me first. And the sad reality is, uh, too many Christians take so much credit for their walk in the in the in the faith um, that they tend to forget sometimes where they came from, if you will. You know, we we use the analogies in, in regular life. You know, when when someone makes it big, they forget where the roots are from. Well, I think a lot of believers do the same thing. Um, you know, when when they go through life and they have, that God has been good to them, God has blessed them, God has um, really changed certain situations in their life. They no longer struggle with the same sin that they struggled with before. Um, they're getting victory in life. Um, you know, they're raising a good family. God's blessing them in different areas. And what ends up happening is they forget, they forget uh, where they came from. They forget the love that Christ had for them. Um, and I think it's good for us, as much as we move forward, to always remember the past, what Christ has done for us. That's something you don't forget. That's not one of those things where I'm going to keep going forward and forget what Jesus has done for me. Um, you don't do that. Uh, that's not what we're talking about, and that's not what Paul was talking about in Philippians either. You only love Christ because he first loved you. He was the initiator. You were the responder. Um, you had nothing to do with searching for God. You know, this concept of people are looking for deity, um, it's not true. If you, if you believe the Bible, no one seeks after God. We've all gone astray. Um, so the, the idea of us actually going and searching for a deity, and there's, you know, there, I do believe there's a God-shaped hole in all of our hearts, that only God can fill, but the reality is, is no, none of us know where that is, you know, how to fill that until God reveals that to us. Um, I think there's an emptiness in every single heart uh, that is apart from Christ. Uh, but let's turn in, in John chapter 15, and I want to point out a few things. Uh, Jesus here is talking to his disciples, so you have to understand the context. Um, this is not uh, written to those um, that really were not, I would say, believers yet in him. I would say that most of them were already believers with the exception of Judas. Um, but he makes a statement here that I think is very vital for us to uh, pay attention to, starting at verse 11. These things have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. You notice the next text. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. There's a qualifier there. Um, that this, this really indicates whether you really are a friend of Christ or not in, in this context. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask in the, in the Father in my name he may give to you. These things I command you, that you love one another. And later on Christ goes through the fact that you're going to go through persecution, you're going to go through hard times just like I did if you love me. Um, and I think this is where um, a lot of us as believers, we tend to uh, go through the everyday life uh, knowing a lot of these things, we know a lot of these facts, we know how Christ has loved us in the past, and we, what we end up doing is because we're kind of going for certain things in the ministry, we're going for certain things in our lives, we have certain goals uh, for our children, for a house, uh, for our church, um, we tend to not 
to not really evaluate how precious that grace appears, if, if you will, according to the hymn. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed? Remember that, you know that line in, in Amazing Grace? I think what ends up happening is we kind of lose that. Um, if you understand the background of uh, who John Newton was and how it really was incredible that God saved him out of the slave trade that he was in, um, it'll really amaze you that, to know that this is the kind of, these are the kind of things that we need to be constantly reminded of um, is God's work in the past on our behalf when we didn't deserve it. Christ sacrificed his life for us because he considered us his friends. And reiterates the point that he chose us and we didn't choose him. We were enemies originally. But when you trusted in Christ, when you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, turned from your sin, you became his friend. This is the amazing part about the gospel message. Enemies become friends. And the sad reality is we, we tend to, um, those of us that have grown up in the church any amount of time, including myself here, um, we tend to look at it and say, well, I've kind of always known about Christ and I grew up in a Christian home. But the reality is I was an enemy of God. And you have to realize that even if you trusted Christ at an early age, you were at some point an enemy of God. Um, it doesn't matter that you, were, you said your cute little prayer around the table. No, I'm, I'm saying that sincerely. Uh, my kids pray right now. Um, do I believe they're saved? No, I don't. But the reality is, is that we can't, we can't not remember the fact that we were once enemies of God. Okay, we can't forget that fact. And I think what happens as time goes on, we, we forget how much we truly resented God before. Um, how, many, uh, how many of us really would resent God by doing things that he always hated and always thinking it's okay because morally we were okay with doing what we did. And he was the one that called us out of this world. He wasn't waiting for a good moral group of people that he could call his friends. You know, if you look at the disciples' lives, in fact, the text that he's talking about is really to his disciples, they had different traits. Um, they had many different trades, and not all of them were honest trades. If you really think about Matthew, um, put in modern vernacular, he'd be kind of the IRS agent. You know, um, he'd be the kind of guy that really wouldn't always deal with money properly. He'd always try to figure out what what way he could do it to to take advantage of somebody, and that was really before he met Christ. Um, you had Peter, who's a fisherman, and and I think what ends up happening is many times what happens with a lot of believers is uh, God calls them out of the darkness into the light, and they tend to forget what God has gifted them with and go, well, i got to separate the secular and the sacred. You don't have to do that. What God has gifted you with, you could still use for the gospel's sake. In fact, Peter goes back and fishes again. He does the same thing later on. Um, you know, Paul, Paul was also a tent maker. He's, he didn't stop making tents. He still uh, you know, provided for himself as well by, by working on the side. His goal was not to just sit there and live off of the giving of all the church members. He literally wanted to work as well. And he didn't take that lightly that God had called him to ministry. Christ is also the prime example of loving your enemies. He truly had a heart and compassion for the lost. Paul wrote, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Christ makes that statement as well. He reiterates this theme in Romans 13, 8. He who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Did Christ say that he came to fulfill the law? So... Christ was the ultimate fulfillment of the law. And he loved his enemies. He loved those around him that never loved him. Now, what do we mean by love? I think this is where a lot of people go into their different tangents in their mind. What, do mean, what we mean by that is doing good to those around them, even when they're not doing good to you. In fact, Scripture tells us to bless our enemies, to pray for them, 
I mean, I, I think that's a biblical concept that is lost sometimes because we have that, we have that tension between the flesh and the spirit constantly. Uh, the flesh wants revenge. Uh, the spirit goes, no, you need to forgive them. You, you really need to work this out. And, and that tension constantly uh, creates more and more friction sometimes if we keep yielding to the flesh. And some of those things, as Pastor points out this morning, are hard to break out after a while. They're hard to break out of. Because after you've been living in the flesh, as Scripture talks about, you will die. The point is, is there's, a, there's a pattern that leads to death. There's a pattern that leads to ultimately being separated from God if we're not in Christ. And a believer should not, should not give in to the flesh to the point of being bitter towards somebody or in the sin to where they never want to glorify Christ. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, the man that was wounded would be considered an enemy, not a friend. Listen to what MacArthur says on this. He says, Do we imagine a Jesus as perfect man loves those whom Christ, Jesus as God does not love? Would God command us to love in a way that he does not? Would God demand that our love be more far-reaching than his own? And did Christ, having loved all humanity during his earthly sojourn, then revert after his ascension to pure hatred for the non-elect? Such would be unthinkable. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, yes, and forever. Do not, do not put God in a box, but take Scripture as a whole when you look at the picture of Christ, when you look at the picture of God the Father, when you look at the picture of of the Holy Spirit. And I think what happens is we, we have this tendency to interpret the Old Testament with God was a harsh God and in the New Testament he became a gracious God. No, God has been always gracious. And scripture actually says in the Old Testament, long-suffering. Long-suffering. And in fact, Peter actually reiterates something from the Old Testament. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So that long-suffering is there. So number two... What does Christ care for? Turn back in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Christ cares for the church's sanctification, for her sanctification. Verses 26 and 27. That he may sanctify and cleanse her with the washing in the water by the word. That he might present to himself, her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she should be holy and without blemish. Christ cares about our sanctification and gave of himself in order for us to be a pure bride. He wanted us as a church to be holy and set apart in order to present us without any flaws before the throne. We need to stop and think of this sometimes. That we with all our mistakes, our sin, our struggles, Christ wants to present us faultless as a beautiful bride. It is as if Christ wants to present us or stand alongside us to make sure we are clean. You realize that Christ cares about the ceremony? And sadly, we're the, we're the bride that doesn't want to get ready many times. Jesus was not looking to see who would be the perfect match. There were none. We weren't it. You and I were not it. We weren't the perfect match for Christ. 
He loved the church despite the flaws, but would not allow the church to be presented in the way that they are right now. In her flawed condition, but he wanted to present her pure in glory. Notice the incredible words, and I'm, I'm saying incredible, verse 27. That he might present to her, her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Christ wants to present a glorious church. It's something incredible to see. You ever been to a wedding where it's just, it's just perfect? It seems like everything's just together. I mean, the bride looks beautiful. The arrangements look great. I mean, the decorations are incredible. The, the, time, the schedule goes perfect. I mean, it's almost like a flawless day. You ever been to one of those? I mean, I know not every wedding is like that. But you ever been to one of those? Where you just, just, just awestruck. It's just incredible, all the work that was put in and how, how it was presented. Now think of it at a grander scale, that one day that's what Christ wants to do with us. He wants to present us glorious. We don't tend to think of ourselves as glorious, okay? You know, particularly those of us that have been convicted by sin constantly, we don't tend to think, oh yeah, Christ is going to really present me glorious before the Father. But this is what Scripture says. I'm not reading something that's not there, am I? That's what it says right there. Does it not? Does it not say that Christ wants to present the church glorious? This is, this is just incredible because I think sometimes we need to pause and realize that there's a finished product that you and I have no idea what it's going to be like. You know, I think of the song my, my son sings sometimes. He's still working on me to make me who I ought to be. <laughs> Just breaks my heart sometimes when I hear him saying it because I'm not there yet. I know I'm not. But I think the incredible truth in this whole thing is, is that one day, one day you and I will stand before the throne blameless, faultless. And that's the way Christ wants to present every single one of us as believers. Every single one of us, without exception. Not the one that's been saved for 20 years, not the one that's just been saved for two minutes. Every one of us he wants to present blameless. Every single one. The question is, how does Christ do this? How does he do this? How does he work this out? Well, I, would, I want to point out a few things. Number one, he corrects us when we need it. Hebrews chapter 12, turn there really quick. Hebrews chapter 12. <clears throat> Starting at verse 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation which, which speaks to you as to sons... My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. And look at verse 10. For they indeed for a few days, speaking of earthly fathers, chastened us as seemed best to them. Listen, this is important right here. But he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. 
Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So what Christ does is take the approach of chasing us because he cares about our sanctification. Remember what we talked about to present her glorious, spotless? Well, the importance of sanctification is that it's not really on your terms, it's on God's terms. Um, you don't get to pick how God wants to work that sanctification out in your life. Um, once you're his child, he's going to work with you. And he's going to work on you. And yes, you can resist. Many of us do, still. But there are a few things that he uses specifically in chastening that I think are important for us to point out. Number one, he uses the Word of God. He uses the very thing we just opened this morning to correct us, to chasten us. The idea is to instruct us so that we would live more conformed to the image of Christ. For example, just a verse, we, we discussed this actually even uh, in youth group. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. This right here is the word of God that tells you specifically that this is wrong and that you need to stay away from it. Abstain. Stay away from it. And when you and I disagree with that, God turns up the heat. In fact, I have a whole sermon on this specifically. I'm not going to get into all the details on this. But he uses the word to chasten us. God's word is there to correct us. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God as prophet for doctrine, for reproof, for correction. There's the word. For instruction and in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished to every good work. The man of God may be mature. So the first thing he uses is the word of God in our lives. Another way that he actually chastens us is using circumstances in our lives. This is the one that people always question whether it's God chastening me or not. And to be, to be honest with you, not everything that you go through that's difficult is God chastening you necessarily. So this is one where you need to be careful to not think that, okay, this bad instance happened in my life, God is punishing me, and you might be actually going through what Job went through. Does that make sense? Does God still want to work in your life? Absolutely, but you need to be careful that you don't judge wrongly on this one because what ends up happening is a lot of people they see circumstances in people's lives and they go see God's working on them uh, he is but that not, might not be the interpretation you need to come up with um, because last time I checked if you actually look at some of those that opposed Moses it doesn't go it doesn't end well for them later on okay you look at Job's friends doesn't end well for them you know there are going to be times where God will have to correct you for your wrong assessment of someone else and what he's dealing with in their life. In fact, David's sin of adultery, listen to this, circumstances in life, cost his child's life. And you know what else happened? The ultimate punishment of the sword never departing from his house. There would always be conflict going on that would never stop. David had to deal with the consequences on this earth for his sin, though he had repented and restored fellowship with God. 
There are decisions that we as a church make we cannot escape the consequences for, no matter what we repent of. And we can ask God to forgive us, but it's part of the process of sowing and reaping. That, that Galatians text dealing with sowing and reaping, we have to constantly remind ourselves of what you sow, you will reap, but you don't get to pick what you reap. You don't get the option. One terrible decision here will not determine what the outcome is later on. You don't know that. And to many of us, God is gracious and extends mercy for quite a length of time before he decides to make sure that we understand the consequence of what we have just done. And the third way that I believe God chastens us, he uses others as a way of chastening. He brings other people in our lives as a way of chastening. What do I mean by that? When David sinned, who came by? The prophet, right? So the prophet comes by to deliver the message from God. Here's an important factor, and I think this is where it gets difficult for many believers. Is there going to be times in your life where somebody will come along and correct you on something? And the question is, are you going to listen to that, or are you going to let that just go away on its own, disregard the instruction, or repent? Because I'll tell you right now, the, the difference between um, one consequence and a greater one later on is whether you and I listen to the instruction that's given to us. There have always been people in your life and my life that have been walking closer to God at certain times than we have. And they've come along and encouraged us or said, hey, you know what, this is where I think you're off. You need to take a look at this. And your response, your response really determines what the consequence is later on if you don't listen. If you don't pay attention. Do you believe that David's uh, response, if it had been not owning his sin, the consequences would have been greater? I do. I truly believe that if David res didn't respond the way he did, the conse consequences would have been much greater. I believe he would have lost his life based on what I see that God told him directly that he was sparing him on. Here's an important point. The more impurities, the hotter the flame needs to be to get rid of that in our lives. So when you're going through things in your life, remember that picture. We, we know the text in Scripture says that God is a consuming fire. You realize there are a lot of impurities in your life and my life that he is trying to work out so that he can make us clean to present. Now, are you going to reach perfection at this this, in this life, absolutely not. But he's working. The more impurities, the hotter the flame needs to be to get rid of them. So Christ cares about the church's sanctification. The third, going back to Ephesians chapter 5. Christ cares to take care of the church taking care of her. Starting at verse 28, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Notice this text right here. Just as the Lord does the church. 
just as the Lord does the church. The idea of nourish is to develop, nurture, to lift up. It means to nurse to maturity, to nourish, to bring up from childhood, to raise a child to maturity by providing not just for physical but also emotional and spiritual needs. Ectrefo means to provide food for with the implication of a considerable period of time and the food being adequate for nourishment. This word could mean that a man is to be a breadwinner or provider. Christ has promised to take care of all our needs, not necessarily all our wants. Very important distinction. Here's another word. The word cherish has a deep meaning that it refers to comfort, to warm, to soften. God is not correcting us through chastening in order just to purify us with just a careless attitude towards us. He is nurturing and cherishing us as the church. He genuinely cares about your hurts in life. And if you don't understand that, you're going to have a lot of struggles in your life that you're going to constantly go through and always misunderstand the God of the Bible. Christ himself said, come to me, all you labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Is that not the God of the Bible? Are we saying Christ is not that? Here's a very encouraging text. And I think Monford mentioned it one time. To be honest with you, it's been one of the encouraging texts in my life. Psalm 56, 8. You keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in a bottle. You've recorded each one in your book. Want to talk about the God of the universe caring about his church? Want to talk about Christ caring for us? There's another text that David says in Psalm 119, 76 and 77. Now let your unfailing love comfort me, just as you promised your servant. Surround me with your tender mercy so that I may live, for your instructions are my delight. Another text further down, verses 81 82. My soul faints with longing for your salvation, but I have put my hope in your word. My eyes fail looking for your promise, I say. When will you comfort me? question for us is, do you find the word of God to be comforting to you? God is not going around whispering in everyone's ear. What he's saying is, I have the word for you to comfort you. I care and I nourish the church. I cherish the church. She's valuable to me. Can you believe that? Christ holds us valuable, though we have nothing to be valued for. We're valuable to him. And he cherishes and nourishes us. He takes care of us. We're precious to him. I think sometimes we just get carried away with everyday life and forget the thoughts that Christ has towards us sometimes. He wants more than for you to succeed in this life. He wants you to be glorious to present. He wants more for you 
than the present. He has eternity in mind when it comes to the church. I don't know who said this, but I quote, dealing with this text, the Lord clearly supplies every need of his body. The church and husbands likewise are to do the same for their wives. They're not just to provide for most of her needs or just provide when she's too picky or too demanding. What the church needs, Christ supplies, and husbands are to do the same to their wives without caveats or qualifiers. There is one caveat. Husbands are not to provide for her every want, but for her every need. However, even in this situation, the husband is to help her discern the difference between wants and needs, but to do it with gentleness and kindness. We're going to get into some of this next week. The husband is the provider, the protector, and the preserver. Husbands are missing the mark when they view their wives as objects, cooks, babysitter, house cleaner, sex partner, etc. She is God's gift and is to be continually cherished and nurtured. So in conclusion, we see the different ways that Christ communicates his love for the church. He gives of himself for her, cares for her sanctification, and then nourishes and cares for her, taking care of her. Until we as husbands get this picture of Christ, we're not going to be able to apply the scripture correctly. We're going to jump to us thinking we're doing a good job. Well, the, the famous quote by many men, I put food on the table. I work my job. Um, you're only doing part of what Christ has done. Does that make sense? You're only doing part of Christ, what Christ has done for the church. One thing to take away this morning is the importance of seeing how we're lining up to the way Christ has loved the church and the way he communicates his love for us and he has communicated to us in the past. We'll get into some of the specifics next week and how this practically works out in our lives as husbands, but I think it's important to take a look at Christ first to get the proper picture before we apply his scripture. Um, the easier thing to do is to jump to application without taking a closer look at what Christ has done for us. So let's close with a word of prayer. And I'll ask the worship band to come up for the closing song. Father, thank you so much for this day you've given us. Thank you for your word. We thank you for the way Christ has loved the church. The church with all its blemishes and flaws, you want to present blameless and glorious. Father, I thank you so much for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf, that he gave himself for us. We ask that you would be honored and glorified in our lives and that we as Sovereign Grace Church together, united, could stream or to be holy. More to be willing to listen when you correct us, Father. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.